welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick and I'm here with Wendy and we are still going on the Camino Ascent. It is now day 14 and we are taking our second rest day in Évora. Yeah, so I guess we're averaging about a rest day a week. I don't know if we'll stick to that or not, but this rest day in particular was definitely needed. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's going well so far, but also definitely in need of a rest. All right, so now that we're having our rest day, we can reflect a little bit more on uh, the past few days. And we're now well entrenched in the region that's known as the Alentejo. And this is really the focus region of this whole Camino because the Camino itself has been created by, essentially by the tourism board of the Alentejo. Yeah, I don't know exactly how the whole thing came about, but definitely it seems like they're the ones who are the most involved. And we've talked about in a previous episode about how they created this booklet that you can download that has lots of information about the different stages of the Camino within the Alentejo region. And then the other regions on either side of that were just kind of left on our own. Right. And so we've been to the Alentejo uh, a couple of times, but not really, we haven't really spent a lot of time in the Alentejo. It's the largest and most depopulated region of Portugal. So it's essentially between Lisbon and the Algarve uh, in the very south of Portugal. And, you know, we've been to Evora before, we've been to Beja, which is another city that we're going to talk about as well. Um, but because it's very depopulated, it's a very rural area. And so there aren't a lot of kind of big ticket attractions. So in terms of just traveling in the normal sense, if you're traveling around Portugal, for example, it's not really seen perhaps as a great highlight region. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think the appeal of the Alentejo is probably mostly in the countryside. Uh, so we've had the privilege of walking through some really beautiful countryside in the Alentejo. And we have come to know on this Camino that there are actually a lot of, you know, rural houses for rent, like an agriturismo kind of um, business where you can go spend a weekend out in the countryside on a farm or things like that. Um, and when we've been looking for accommodation along the way, in many cases, those are the kinds of places that we've come across. So uh, I guess it is known for that, but probably more so among Portuguese tourists than among international tourists. Right. And then as you touched on, because it's so rural, it's really the perfect place to be on Camino because you can get to go to some of these places that you otherwise might not be able to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there are some places that we've passed through in the past a week or two that, yeah, I know we never would have seen them in any other way uh, because it just would have been too difficult to get there and, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been worth spending however many hours changing buses and things trying to find your way there. But when you're walking through, then you do get to experience them and, yeah, it's been really great. Right, so to continue with this rural theme for our episode today, we're talking about villages in the Alentejo. And one thing I think certainly that struck me uh, in the past week or so is that the first let's say three days that we spent were really rural even by Alentejo standards you know the subsequent days after that we've come across uh, the, the towns have been a lot bigger and less spread out and things like that but I think our introduction to the Alentejo on this Camino was really even within that rural context you know even more isolated um, than the rest of the region. 
Yeah, I guess that's fair to say. Uh, we don't know what's coming next, so maybe it'll become very rural once again. That's also true. We, we never know what's coming next on this Camino. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, it was uh, kind of a real eye-opener. And, you know, we had to do more preparation than usual in terms of bringing more food with us because sometimes we would go for many kilometers without seeing any kind of shops, mini mercados, or any restaurants. Like, there was just nowhere to get food. Um, so, yeah, we had to plan a bit more, you know, to the extent that we could. And, um, you know, yeah, it was a very different situation than walking the Frances or the Portuguese or these other well-traveled Caminos where you know, people know that pilgrims are coming and so they set up businesses and services for them and here there was nothing at all like that. Right, and so on that note, we're going to talk uh, in a minute about one place that we did stay, which was quite special. Um, but a couple of the other nights that we spent in these villages, we had to call ahead to, in one case, to the local council, which is called the Junto de Freguesia here in Portugal, and in another case to a, a so-called recreation and welcome center, which is just the cafe of the town. Right. Um, and those, those villages didn't have accommodation in a traditional sense uh, that you could call and book, but you had to call in advance to, to this... Uh, other organization uh, and then they w would arrange accommodation for you and you had to go to them to pick up the key and then they would show you where it was but it's not as though it's a hotel with a sign out the front and a listing on booking.com or, or whatever <laughs> no no definitely not yeah so that was an interesting experience and yeah we'll see how it goes going forward it's been a little bit hit and miss with trying to contact the juntas de freguesia because we've done it a few times now and one time um, yeah, we came up blank. They just said, no, we don't have any accommodation in this village and we can't help you. Um, but, and there was another one that said, oh, we don't really know. And it turned out that they did have accommodation. Um, but the person that we were dealing with at that time just wasn't aware of it. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much they are able to help. But yeah, it's definitely... Um, you know, we're traveling through places that just don't get very many visitors of any kind normally. And, um, and there aren't many pilgrims on this trail yet either. So there's not much of a demand and it just depends on whether they've already taken the initiative to set something up or not. Um, so, so far it's worked out really well. Um, actually, there was one place where we were really surprised because it was a tiny village with 30 or 40 something people living there and yet they had this huge reception center with a, a private room which was where we were because there wasn't anyone else staying there at the time but also two other large rooms with a whole bunch of bunk beds like you could have practically put the entire population of the village inside this reception center and i just was kind of blown away by it because i didn't understand why they would need such a huge, you know, infrastructure and who would be coming. Uh, but, you know, because like I said, there aren't many pilgrims at this point. Um, but yeah, we spoke to the woman who was running it and she said that they do get large groups and that they had had a group the previous week of 30-something people from Lisbon. Um, so I guess it, it is kind of known as a place where you can go and do this kind of rural tourism or maybe it's a, a group of colleagues who go to do some team building exercise or something like that. I don't really know how they've um, marketed themselves, but they seem to be doing a, a good job of it. <music> 
Right, so just to talk about a few of the villages in particular, and firstly, even to use the word village for some of these places is um, probably not really accurate. They're more like hamlets. Right. You know, you talk about walking something like the Camino Frances and you're, you're talking about a village-to-village -village walk, um, but there's villages and there's villages. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's villages um, that have, you know, several albergues and that have a few churches and, and they're quite historic and, and whatnot, uh, and then there's villages with two people living in them. Yes, and, and we have experienced that too. And those are the kinds of villages that we're talking about, or really hamlets that we're talking about here in the Alentejo. Yeah, I think I've heard local people use the word mont, like, or monchi is what I would say with a Brazilian accent, M-O-N-T-E, uh, which is literally like, a, I guess, a small mountain or a hill, but that seems to also be a way that they sometimes refer, maybe that's kind of the equivalent of the term hamlet in English. Right, and so... As we entered the Alentejo from the Algarve, and we mentioned this a couple of episodes back, that we had this amazing day, an amazing stage of incredible natural scenery, but we passed absolutely nothing in terms of settlements of any kind for the entire stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, we arrived in this village. And so it was our introduction to the Alentejo on this Camino, and the village is called Mishkita. And we did uh, mention this briefly in our Islamic uh, heritage episode that Mishkita means mosque in Portuguese. And the funny thing was, when I when we were planning this Camino, and it was hard to do a lot of planning, but I saw that there was a kind of hostel in Mesquita, and so we booked it. But I didn't understand it at the time, because I looked at the town on Google Maps, and it's this tiny little village, and there's no other accommodation, and I thought, what on earth is a hostel doing there? I just didn't really get it all, and it didn't even really occur to me that it could possibly be more like an albergue, because on this Camino, there just aren't albergues, and I still to this well, to this day we haven't seen another one and i don't think we're going to see another one mm -hmm. but this was actually an albergue um and this whole t uh, village of mesquita and the revitalization project that's going on there was really quite fascinating and it was a, a really uh, interesting introduction for us to the alentejo and just to find out about this project and so we really loved our time there we did we absolutely loved our time there um, I guess I should say that, I mean, the word albergue does translate to hostel in English, but when we talk about albergues in the context of the Camino, we're thinking about specific pilgrims' hostels that are made for pilgrims. You can also have youth hostels, which would be albergue de juventud, um, you know, which is more for young people traveling around Europe. Um, but yeah, and so I guess you had seen it in the English version of the book and saw that they had translated it as hostel, so we were just thinking it was more like a youth hostel. But it turns out that, yeah, it was intended for people walking the Camino de Santiago and also the GR15, which is another long-distance route that passes through there. And um, part of what they've done for this redevelopment, sustainable tourism development project of Mosquita, is that they've created a short hike hiking trails around the town. So they're really doing a lot to try to attract visitors and even permanent residents. They're trying to get people to move into the town and revitalize it and bring it back to life because it was all, all but dead at the point when this project started. Yeah, we spoke uh, for quite some time with the person who seems to be the driving force behind this project, his name is Cesar, and he his parents are from this town, Mesquita. He was actually born in Lisbon, but he used to come back to Mesquita on, on you know, family trips and things like that. And he's now back in the village and he's driving this whole project. And, and the expression that he used with us was that the village was dying. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it's this scene that, that many other pilgrims would have seen elsewhere on other Caminos where you sometimes you go through a village and, and you can see that basically all the young people have gone. There's mm-hmm. only old people left and there's no services and it's just kind of dying. And that's the way that he described Meshkita. He said there were 16 people living in the village uh, until they began this revitalization project. So as part of the project, they are, as you said, trying to encourage people to move. And some people and even some expatriates have mm-hmm. moved to the village. I think mm-hmm. an Italian couple and an English couple have bought uh, property in the village. They've uh, started this albergue. They've also opened a restaurant, which he's running. And they also have some other apartments or houses that they've refurbished, which are available for short-term rental as well. And so you can go and spend a weekend or something in Mesquite if you don't want to stay in the Alberta in a, in a, in a dorm room. Uh, you don't have to. And so this has all happened really in the last couple of years. It's uh, incredibly unfortunate that the pandemic hit uh, at the time mm-hmm. that it did for this project. So uh, Cesar told us that the Alberga opened in November of 2019. So just in time for winter, we mm-hmm. probably wasn't going to get many guests. And then the pandemic hit in spring of 2020. Um, but we were very ecstatic to be able to stay there. There are just four beds, um, but it's very, it's very comfortable. It's very nicely done. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little sort of kitchen, a kitchenette. Um, where they have a, a sort of a camp stove that you can cook on and then there's a, there's a table and a couch that you can sit on, um, table and chairs and a couch that you can sit on. Um, and we were the only people there, of course. And I think most of the people who stay there, and there aren't many given the pandemic situation and given that it's new and it's sort of starting to, you know, trying to attract people, um, maybe most of the people are just walking the GR15 or doing a couple of days of, of hiking. And as you mentioned a couple of episodes ago, that hike that we did uh, was was a hike that could easily be a day hike for anybody that, that could be attractive for people to go and do that because it's really incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And so even though this place, Mesquite, is kind of in the middle of nowhere, you can see how it would attract hikers who aren't necessarily on the Camino or, or don't even perhaps know about the Camino. Yeah, I think it's a fabulous place to go and spend a weekend in, the, you know, a rural setting in the countryside. I mean, we actually talked about, oh, if your parents come back and visit to visit us in Portugal again, maybe we could go there and spend a couple of days there. And then you could, if you had a car, you could easily do some interesting day trips from there as well. So I think it has a lot of potential and I think it's a wonderful project. Um, I really admire Cesar for taking it on. Um, you know, because I believe that he grew up in the city in Lisbon, from what I understand. His parents are from the village of Mesquite, or his family anyway. His grandparents are from the village of Mesquite, and so he would always spend his summer holidays there. But he's a city man himself, and, you know, to leave that and to take on this huge project of try trying to bring your home village back to life in this context of the pandemic and everything, um, you know, it's it's quite an undertaking and I really, really hope that it succeeds. Yeah, and so given that this was our introduction to the Antesia, we thought, oh, maybe, you know, there's some other villages further on that have done something similar. So we asked that a little bit hopefully to, to Cesar. He said, no, there's nothing else like this. Right, uh, but, yeah. you know, if it becomes successful, then maybe it will uh, serve as a model for other villages that can do the same thing. I think you need someone like him behind it uh, to take that initiative. And, you know, as you alluded to, most of the population of these villages are older people who are not necessarily at a stage in their life when they, you know, want to take on this big entrepreneurial 
role and take on a lot of risk and things like that. So that could be something that that hinders, you know, the, the spread of this type of project. But yeah, and just on that, yeah, he's kind of the perfect type of person to be involved in this because he has those ancestral roots in the village, but he grew up himself in the city, so he has. I don't know what he studied or if he did higher education, but you know maybe he, um, you know he has certain skills or knowledge that are that are related to this, and he also speaks English pretty well, which can help in in attracting foreign investment or foreigners to the village. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if uh, there are other villages that have a person like that, then yeah, maybe they could get something off the ground as well. Yeah, I hope so. And so the next day after this. We walked uh, to Mertola, which we talked about in our last episode, and that was just a fascinating day. We those are probably even still, I think, our two favorite days on this Camino so far. The first one going to Mesquita just because of the natural beauty, and then the second one when we were on top of this plateau, and it was a very different kind of beauty, but also just because we passed through these other villages or other hamlets, which were just really fascinating in their own way as well. Uh, and so the first one of these was called uh, Vicente, and we actually. One of the, or the, it was a little bit difficult to follow because the official guide or this little booklet that you mentioned earlier had the Camino turning off at a certain point that the arrows didn't follow that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you did take that turn off, you would have missed this village. And we followed the arrows and, and didn't really realize that we'd sort of missed this turn off or, or that maybe they've rerouted it specifically to go through this village instead. But it was a little bit longer, but we went through this village of Vicente. And that was really interesting because... It was, apart from Mesquita, which is kind of its own, you know, has its own attraction and its own project now, it was the first of these villages that, that we'd been into. And one of the first things we saw was a communal oven, mm-hmm. a communal bread oven, and we were fascinated by that. Little did we know that basically every village subsequently uh, that we passed through had a communal oven as well. Yeah, and sometimes multiple. There some, have been cases where we've seen more than one of these ovens uh, in a single village. But yeah, there were definitely... Very common. I don't know how many of them are still in use now, though. Yeah, I think the vast majority are not in use. I mean, some of them we saw weeds growing out of them, and they were obviously many years removed from being in use. This one in Vicente, I believe, was still in use, and it had a lock on the the little door in the oven. And one of the villagers came up to me and explained that it was her oven, which I thought was quite funny, uh, because it's it's just on a street. Mm. Um, It's clearly was designed as a communal oven for the entire village to bake bread. Mm-hmm. And in fact, just opposite it, and this was the only one, uh, the only thing like this that we've seen, there was also a communal grill, which was built into the building opposite, um, kind of jutting out a little bit from that building. And so it was basically between the oven and the grill, a place for the villagers to, to gather and, um, and, and, and cook. Mm-hmm. And of course, now you have the uh, little white bread wagon or bread van that comes by and, you know, does a, a route around the various villages and people can buy ready-made bread that way. So that's why a lot of these are no longer in use because it's a lot of work to bake your own bread and it's something that you can buy very cheaply. Um, and if you have someone who drives up in a van on a regular schedule, uh, every few days and you can buy from him, then, you know, that's obviously the easier solution. And that actually happened while we were there in Vicentes and we really needed some bread that day. So it was incredibly fortuitous. Uh, we had stopped, uh, because there was a water fountain. And so I stopped to have a foot bath because, um, 
that's something that helps my feet to keep from aching. And we were just about to pack up and go and start walking again when this white van drove up. And yeah, I thought, oh, could that be a bread van? Because that is something that we have seen before in Spain as well when walking on other Caminos. And the other thing was that there were, I mean, we don't know what the population of this village was, but there were sort of five or six people just kind of lingering around the main square, sort of, they, they didn't seem to be that interested or that engaging in us. And we were kind of thinking, what, like, what are they doing exactly? But they were waiting for this van. Yeah, I thought that they were just hanging out because, you know, how, what else is there to do when you live in a tiny village like that? So I didn't think that it was unusual that they were just sitting there. Um, but yeah, I believe that they were probably waiting there for the van. And I think that it was probably just about the entire population of the village that came out to buy bread from the van. And that was only a handful of people. And a couple of them at least bought a lot of bread, like several days worth of bread. So I'm not sure if this van just passes that particular village maybe twice a week. Um, but as you said, we were incredibly fortuitous because this area is so isolated. There are no stores at all. Mm -hmm. So between Alcating and Myrtilo, which is two days walk, there are, there's literally not a single store. At the restaurant in Mishkita with Cesar, he has a couple of items that he sells. Um, but he doesn't have bread and he doesn't have much. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know what we would have done exactly without Fred that day. Um, because also when we were in Alcatine, we couldn't go to the store there because we were there on the weekend and it was closed. Uh, so we were really down to, to very little supplies. Um, and so the, the bread van did save us. But yeah, it's just interesting that it seems as though the communal bread oven seems to be the very basis of these villages, or at a certain point was. It was like, you know, it, it seems evident to us looking back now that you have to have this communal bread oven for people to be able to eat and, and mm -hmm. to be able to, to have food, you know, a few decades ago. And now you have the, the bread van, which is the modern equivalent, uh, and that has kind of rendered this... You know, these communal ovens, which were the focal point of the villages, as essentially useless now. Although, there was one uh, village that we went to a few days later that we passed through, and they are still using their communal bread oven, and they bake bread twice a week. And we went through there, and we also needed bread, again, because <laughs> there are no stores. And we basically went to this a, a little bar, a little cafe, and it was quite a hot day, and we went and just got a drink there. And we asked the woman if she had bread, and she did. She said, it's not today's bread. And we said, well, it's, you know, beggars can't be choosers at this point. We need bread. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even the day before's bread. It was the day before that. Um, but she said that when you do bake bread in a, in a wood-fired oven like this, it does last longer. And so we bought some bread from her, and it was, it was two days old, but it was okay. Yeah, it didn't taste like stale bread. It, it was pretty good. And she gave us just a half a loaf, so we didn't have, like, a huge... Because they're pretty big loaves, and... Yeah, we didn't have like a huge amount of bread left over that we wouldn't have known what to do with. But yeah, there was actually a sign at the entrance to that village that um, explained, both in English and Portuguese, I believe, uh, a bit about the history of the village and what it's famous for. Oh yeah, because the sign said Rota du Pont, uh, which is like the bread route. So I guess there was also a kind of a local hiking trail that passed through there that was called the bread route. And it took you to this village, which is famous for its bread, because the people there do still use the wood-fired communal oven to bake their bread. But the rest of the information on the sign was a little bit outdated because it said that there were two taverns in the village and a little grocer's shop, a mini mercado. Uh, and it turned out that there was no mini mercado and there was only one of the taverns left. 
but the woman who runs the tavern, she she did have the bread there to sell from the tavern as well. So you can get bread there. Um, it just might be a few days old. Yeah, and just an aside on the bread route, it's been interesting just on this whole Camino that we've certain little sections of it have been described as these shorter individual routes. So we had a smuggler's route mm -hmm. uh, at one point that we were walking on and then a bread route another time. And there's also a town called uh, Cuba, which we're going to talk about, uh, I think, in a future episode, where they have a tavern route, which is not exactly a walking uh, or a hiking trail. It's just more within... More like a pub crawl. More like a pub crawl within the town. But yeah, there's all these different uh, hotters or routes um, that are variously themed. And so again, once again, we were like, that we're able to get bread that day. Um, but going back to the previous village of Vicence, and then we continued on and passed through a couple of other villages uh, that day, and we went to one in particular that we found very interesting, which was called Hong Kong uh, Jacima. Actually, there were three little villages called Hong Kong all next to each other, and basically there's a lower, a middle, and an upper version uh, of, of these villages. And so the upper version had a population of two, mm -hmm. and they're both uh, old men, uh, they're both in their 80s, I believe, and so they're, you know, they're obviously single men. Um, and it was interesting that one of them had gone to see his family the previous week, so the other one was alone in the village sort of for the whole week by himself. So temporarily, it was a village of one just for that one week. Um, but what was really interesting is that as we were there, and again, completely fortuitous, there was another van there, a different kind of van from the bread van, um, and it was essentially a mobile games van you could perhaps call it right activities van yeah activities van yeah it was called the ludoteca which when i saw it i thought okay that's like the bibliobus which we saw in spain when we were walking the camino de madrid we saw something called a bibliobus um which well biblioteca is the spanish and portuguese word for library so this was a library inside a bus and it would, you know, just like the bread van goes, uh, takes a route around different villages. The library bus also did a route around different villages to bring books and access to, to books to people who lived in these isolated rural areas. Um, so when I saw Ludoteca, I thought it was going to be something very similar to that, which it kind of was, but it was it was a bit more than that too. Um, so the Ludo uh, yeah, it refers to games and playing. So I thought it was activities for kids. Um, but we ended up talking to the two women who, you know, were there running the project. And it turns out that it's primarily for elderly people because those are the people who are left in these villages. And so that's how we found out that there were these two men who were living in this place. Uh, these women were actually talking to one of the two men um, and we had heard their voices because again we had stopped there um, well you were taking photos of the bread oven <laughs> in that town As in I that did. village yes and i was just resting my feet and i heard voices and we saw the the van in the distance and i heard the man's voice and it kind of sounded like he was telling a story and i thought wow i wonder if they've brought a storyteller, you know, like a professional storyteller to tell stories to all the children in these in this village. Um, and then we went to see what was actually happening. It turns out that no, there are no children. They're just just these two men, and he was the one who was actually receiving the services of the two women who had come from Mertola. Um, and so they do have books. Uh, that they can lend out to people. They also have audiobooks, 
which she said could be either for people who don't know how to read or people who don't have good eyesight anymore and are no longer able to read. Um, and then she had all kinds of paints and, you know, she was talking about decorative arts and uh, all kinds of, yeah, things to do, things that you do with your hands um, and these different activities that they try to engage the elderly people with so that they aren't uh, all alone all the time and to just, you know, uh, keep them mentally active. And the other thing that she said that they had was a tablet, mm. as in an iPad type of device that they would bring around and they, you know, the villagers who didn't have that kind of access or don't have that kind of access uh, normally are able to use that. And, you know, they're, uh, you know, again, they're older people and they're probably not up on the latest te technology trends and perhaps don't even have service for, I don't know if they even mm -hmm. have smartphones. I guess they don't because basically what she was saying was we bring the tablets and they can look at the social networks uh, and look and see photos of their families. Mm. That would seem basically to be the kind of main reason uh, that they would use these tablets. Yeah, yeah. It was just something that I hadn't really thought of that would be a necessary service, but uh, you can see how it would be. And the final village uh, that we want to talk about today is a village called Mosteiru, which is the Portuguese word for a monastery. And so that already was quite an interesting name for a village. Yeah, well, and we've had one called Mosquita now, and here we have one called Mosteiru. And there are a couple of different routes that you can take for that stage, and one of them avoids this village, and one of them goes into it. And if you take the one that avoids it, there actually are no villages along the way. You walk... I think it's 20, well, 25 at least kilometers. Uh, that's from Mertola to Amendoeira da Serra. And you pass nothing mm -hmm. along the way in terms of settlements. If you take this alternate as we as we took, you pass through Mosteiro, and that's the only village that you see all day. So again, this just sort of shows the isolation of this uh, particular part of the Alentejo. And we had read in this little booklet that you've referenced from the tourism board uh, of the Alentejo that there was a Visigothic church in this village and we call there was also a reception center but actually what happened was we went to the tourism center uh, the tourism uh, office in Mertola and they gave us the number of the woman who has the keys mm -hmm. so we called the woman who has the keys the day before and said we'd like to visit we're pilgrims etc and she said she wasn't going to be in the village that day or the next day when we were going to be there but she would leave the keys at the quote-unquote reception center which is the tavern of the village mm -hmm. and she did that and so we went uh, through the village and we went into the tavern and they had the keys and they gave it to us and again this is just one of these tiny villages i mean we didn't see many people at all it just has this one tavern uh, and that's it so it appears to be one of these you know kind of dying villages and but they have this church this very very old church and it's actually uh, mislabeled in the booklet as a Visigothic church it's a late Roman church so it's even earlier and it's just this sort of remarkable thing to have in this tiny village yeah and we had it all to ourselves <laughs> there was no one else there and we spent uh, yeah a good amount of time exploring it they had some information panels talking about 
uh, how they had done, you know, kind of archaeological excavations slash renovations of it with, uh, in conjunction with, I think, a university and some archaeology students, and it was good practice for them. Um, so, unfortunately, I sprained my ankle in Mosteiro on the way up to the church, so I wasn't terribly mobile, but uh, we did spend, yeah, a good amount of time up there exploring, and you took lots of photos, and um, yeah, we were really glad to have arranged that in advance, but it's definitely something that you do have to arrange in advance. I mean, who knows? Well, on that particular day, the woman who had the keys wasn't there, so we would not have been able to just rock up. I don't know if she had been there, if we might have been able to ask around and find her, but, you know, in general, I'd say this Camino is the type of Camino where you do want to plan things in advance, and if there's something that you really want to see, or if there's a, t a place that you really want to stay, then it's best to call ahead and arrange that. Right. So the backstory behind the church is that it used to be uh, part of a, a villa, a Roman villa, and then as the Roman Empire transitioned into Christianity, it was converted into a family chapel, and that's that's how it began as a church. And it was it was quite fascinating because you don't see a lot of that late Roman Christian churches are essentially like a, a paleo-christian church you don't see much of that uh, in portugal no. and i mean portugal was on the periphery of these great empires and kingdoms of this period the romans later the visigoths later the muslims so to see anything in portugal and particularly in uh, in this area in southern portugal is is quite extraordinary and so yeah just to have this late roman church which is one of the oldest churches in portugal maybe the oldest and to just have it as this random locked building in this tiny little village that you have to call mm. this lady for to get the keys. Uh, it was just quite an amazing moment, but just another one of these great little surprises that we seem to be getting on this Camino. Yeah, we've had lots of surprises uh, on this Camino, and I'm sure that there are many more ahead. And so we'll be back with more surprises in the next episode. Until then, bon Camino. And buon Camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.